Thank you so much for being here with us today. It's a joy to gather together and worship. And as you open God's Word to Titus chapter 3, we conclude our sermon series on Titus for the faith. An epistle of three chapters, and we get the last verses from verse 9 and following here in a minute. Titus chapter 1 talked about the relationship of believers to the church especially leaders in the church, elders, pastors, and their example to others. Titus chapter 2 talked primarily about believers' relationships with one another. And then Titus chapter 3, in the early part, last week talked about relating to those outside the church, outside of saving faith in Christ. And now we get this part that is a conclusion like Paul concludes many books with some general teaching, with some specific greetings, and a little bit more general. But what we have here is this conclusion of grace, that Paul is writing to Titus, a pastor, an elder there in the island of Crete, and he's encouraging him and instructing him and in how he ought to instruct elders or pastors in the various churches around Crete. And then Paul is telling him here, among all things, choose sound doctrine so that you might live a sound life, but grace be with you. Grace be with you. We're going to begin with grace. We're going to end with grace today, but isn't grace amazing? We love grace. We welcome grace. I don't know about you. I welcome, you know, Oreos. I welcome banana bars. I welcome banana cream pie. I welcome, that's two things with banana. I should show something else. I welcome barbecue. I mean, you know, I welcome a cold Dr. Pepper on a hot day. There's all sorts of things I welcome. And why did I just talk about food? I might be hungry. Yeah, maybe so. There's lots of things I welcome. But above all things, Wouldn't you choose grace? Wouldn't you welcome grace? We hear a little bit about that in our Scripture Memory Verse of the Month, and we'll put that on the screen for you to recite with me, and that's Titus 3.5. Let's say it together. Titus 3.5, He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit. Titus 3, 5. Grace and mercy are like two sides of the same coin, right? Mercy is when you don't get what you do deserve. Grace is when you do get what you don't deserve. And it's both exercises of God's love. And so when God saved us because of His mercy, it's really an exercise of His love. It's really a demonstration of His grace. And He changed us by the Holy Spirit within us. So now we'll get to that Scripture passage. And if you're able to stand with me in the honor of reading God's Word, Titus chapter 3, verse 9 and following. Titus 3, verse 9 and following. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law, because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once... And then warn him a second time, after that, have nothing to do with him. You may be sure that such a man is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Verse 12, as soon as I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, because I have decided to win her there. Do everything you can to help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way, and see that they have everything they need. Verse 14, our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good. 
in order that they may provide for daily necessities and not live unproductive lives. Everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. May God add to the reading of his word. Thank you. You can be seated. What I see in this passage of Scripture today are five ways to live grace. Five ways to live grace, and they're on your sermon outline there. And if you want that sermon outline, you can go on your mobile device, your tablet, whatever, to southviewbaptist.org. There's a thing that says bulletin. You click that, and then from the bulletin page, it even takes you to you version, or maybe if you just use the you version Bible app to read, you go to live, and it'll walk you through there and give you this complete sermon outline if you want it for your use. The first point is that we should be useful. The first way for us to live grace among others is to be useful. Now, we find that there from verse 9, and it says, avoid foolish controversies and genealogies. Avoid arguments and quarrels about the law and disputes. Now, this is similar to the instruction that Paul gave to the church at Ephesus, and he was writing then Timothy, his other son or protege in the ministry, and telling Timothy, you need to avoid these sort of things because of the same sort of false teaching or false doctrine was going on there in the church in Ephesus. So in First and Second Timothy and in the book of Ephesians, you see Paul referencing those sort of things. Listen to what it says, and I'm quoting 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 23 through 26 now. He says, Have nothing to do with foolish and ignorant controversies. You may know that they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of truth, and escape from the snare of the devil after they've been captured by him to do his will. I read that from 2 Timothy for you to see that it wasn't just people that were arguing with one another and you know it was some um, something that didn't cause a lot of trouble. But Paul is concerned for the very souls of those that would get into such arguments and disagreements and quarrels. Now, keep in mind this isn't saying that we shouldn't think critically about scripture that we shouldn't speak analytically about Scripture, that we shouldn't study Bible history, that we shouldn't even know church history. That's not it at all. Like this morning, Melanie was sharing with me from her uh, Bible study from Christy McClellan, a unique insight into what it meant to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus. And so that's not the type of insight that Paul is condemning here. Those type of things are good. What we need to keep in mind is the difference. Go back to verse 9 there. What does he say? But avoid foolish controversies and arguments, or controversies and genealogies and arguments about the law, because they're unprofitable and useless. So our keys there are foolish, unprofitable, and useless, but mainly foolish. If something pushes you towards the gospel, that's helpful, that's useful, that is godly. But if something pushes someone away from the gospel you can be sure that that is foolish. Think about foolish arguments come from foolish people. The only people who say that I'm not like that are the ones that are like that, right? Speaking of foolish people, William Shakespeare said, fools, let them use their talents. Can I get an amen? 
You just need to let a foolish person be foolish because you're not going to shake them out of or change them from their foolishness. The Bible speaks about this. Psalms 14.1 says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. We know from Proverbs 9.10 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of the wisdom. And wisdom and foolishness are opposites. They're diametrically opposed. God calls us to wisdom. God calls us to be useful, to avoid foolish things that are unprofitable and useless. So your question for application there on your first point, be useful, is who can I speak helpfully to? Who can I speak helpfully to? Because what Paul is saying here, if you make it into a positive, when he says avoid foolish controversies, avoid all these kind of things, but be useful, be profitable, you need to ask yourself, who can I speak helpfully to? What is it that I know that can be a benefit to others? Proverbs 12.1 says, whoever loves instruction loves knowledge, but he who hates correction is stupid. Proverbs 29, 11 says, a fool gives vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. You think about what it means to be wise. Think about what it means to be helpful. Proverbs 13, 20 says, the one who walks with the wise will become wise, but a companion of fools will suffer harm. Now, why did I just quote all these Proverbs when talking about wisdom and foolishness? If you hadn't read the book of Proverbs, that's why. It's all about wisdom and foolishness. And if you want to know how to live a godly life, a practical life, read the book of Proverbs. Today is the 25th. Go home and read Proverbs chapter 25. Tomorrow's the 26th. Read Proverbs chapter 26. Trust me, God will get a hold of your mind and your heart and change your life if you apply Proverbs to it day in, day out, even for just one month. So we're supposed to be useful as a way to give grace or to live grace. The second point on your outline this morning from verses 10 and 11 is dismiss divisiveness. Dismiss divisive people in particular. I was just trying to be shorthand in the way I wrote this outline. Notice what it says there in verse 10. Warn a divisive person once and then warn him a second time. And after that, have nothing to do with him. Whoa, okay, let's come back and deconstruct this because that sounds a little harsh, right? Now, the word there used for divisive person is actually the Greek word that we get our English word heretic from, and it means somebody who is, holds on to false doctrine and seeks to cause division. And divisions can not only cause hurt, but they can cause frustration, they can cause anger, they can cause confusion in the church. And if we have a divisive person who is teaching false doctrine, because that's what our first point was about, that's what verse 9 is about, these folks that continue in this, you're supposed to warn them one time, warn them a second time. After that, it says, have nothing to do with them. Your Bible may say, reject them. The NAS says, reject a factious man after a first and second warning. The King James says, a man that is a heretic after the first and second admonition, reject. The word there literally means to turn away from. To turn away from a person. So it's not to disfellowship them. It is not to, you know, kick them out of the church or anything like that. But it's not to have conversations with them, not to be face-to-face with them because you've tried to engage them to speak biblical truth. You've tried to engage them to speak wisdom, but they're demonstrating the foolishness and the hardness of their heart. Paul 
answers that in verse 11. You may be sure that such a man is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Warped and sinful. Literally, warped meaning that he's off track. He's sinful, that he continues to be sinful. It's an ongoing habit, the tense of that Greek word there. And they're self-condemned. In other words, their actions demonstrate that. A fool, you've got to let be foolish. And they're going to demonstrate their own foolishness by their actions, right? Give them enough rope to hang themselves, and they will. What's the Bible say we're supposed to do? That's your second question. Applying it to your own life, that second question, the question on number two, is who can I stop hanging around? I mean, I use a colloquial term, hanging around, associating with, who do I need to stop? Because what does the Bible say there that if you're with somebody who's continually foolish, that demonstrates their heart is warped and sinful, especially what he's talking about is folks that are within the church that call the name of Jesus. What does Paul say? He says you're supposed to turn your face from them. And I'm just putting it this way. Who do you need to stop hanging around? Because they're nothing but divisive. They're nothing but sinful. And they're demonstrating the sinfulness of their heart. You need to dismiss divisive persons in your life. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16 through 19 says, There are six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to Him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift running into evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. If you know somebody like that, you may not need to unfriend them or unfollow them or whatever, but you don't need to hang out with them anymore. False teaching is destructive. It causes more damage in you and in a church body than you know, and we have to stand up against it. Let's move on to your third point. The third way to live grace, according to this passage of Scripture, is to meet needs. So Paul moves in my first two points from talking specifically about false teachers and how they challenge sound doctrine and therefore a sound life. And he's moving to what we've talked about previously in Titus, how that your sound life demonstrates a sound gospel. That because you are saved, because you are changed, because you are following Jesus and seeking to live like Him, your life ought to demonstrate that by what you do. Now, he gets to some specific instructions here in verse 12. He says, as uh, soon as I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis because I have decided to winter there. So there's a couple of things I go, uh, okay, number one, Artemis isn't mentioned anywhere else in Scripture. Tychicus is, and so there's some facts we learn about him, but obviously they're associates. But then I want to go, whoa, Paul, time out, bro. You just sent Titus to Crete with this huge job to set up elders, pastors, and all the churches. And we don't know how many churches that was, but the size of that island is the size of about four Nebraska counties. He doesn't have a car. He's riding a donkey at best or maybe taking a boat around. Who knows? He's got a big job, and now you're telling him, come see me after these guys get here and come before wintertime? I'm like, no pressure, Titus. Paul wasn't in prison because it says, he says, I have decided to winter here. It was his own choice to winter in Nicopolis. So some folks would make a case for the fact that Paul wrote this while he was in prison in Rome and Caesarea or something. No, it says right here, he's, there's where he's going to be. But notice what he says. He says, because 
As soon as I send them to you, do your best to come to me. Verse 13 then. Do everything that you can to help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way and see that they have everything they need. Paul is saying to Titus, his associate, his son in the ministry, I need you here with me in Nicopolis. I've got a job for you. I'm sending Artemis and Tychicus there to Crete. I've got a job for them to replace you. But then these two other guys, they're going to come and you need to meet their needs, Zenos and Apollos. Paul is saying we need each other. There's an exchange of things we can do for one another. And as a follower of Jesus, living grace, we need to consider whose needs we can meet and how we can meet them. That's the practical application here. Second Corinthians chapter 8, verse 5 said, And not only as the Lord we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. Talking about the Corinthian church giving sacrificially and giving to meet the needs of others and giving out of even their own needs. And it illustrates that idea of, we're going to see to it that they have everything they need. It's really easy for me to give out of my excess, but it's hard for me to give out of my need. You know, I, I, I can give a little extra if I have it, but what if I think I don't have it? The question to drive this home for us, your third question on your outline, is who can I provide for? Paul is saying to Titus, meet practical needs of these guys. If we apply that to our lives, we have to say, whose life do I need to meet a practical need for? Who do I know that has a need that I can meet? Some skill that I have? Maybe it's some ability to do something to help them. Maybe it's financial. Maybe it's taking some time and being a listening ear, a shoulder to cry on, even in covid Whatever it is, Jeff Org, the president of Gateway Seminary, formerly Golden Gate Seminary, talks about putting your arms around somebody, and it's an acronym, and I've used it before, but it's worthy to repeat to you again. There's four letters, right? A-R-M-S, arms. He says, accept people as they are is the A. The R is relate to people on their terms, relate to people, so accept, relate. The M is meet the needs of people. Their needs, their real needs, what they tell you, not your perception of their needs. And S is serve people with abandon. That we put our arms around people to do what it is that they need to meet their needs. So after these specific instructions, Paul moves again to the general in verse 14. That takes us to our fourth point. We've talked about dismissing a divisive person. We've talked about being useful. We've talked about meeting needs. But your fourth point on your outline is to do good. Do good. Look at verse 14 there. He says, Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order that, that's the so that in other words, that's hina in Greek, in order that they may provide for the daily necessities and not live unproductive lives. Huh. Necessities, their needs. Not live unproductive, unfruitful lives. The King James translates that verse. It says, And let ours also learn to maintain good works for necessary uses, so that the good things they do are necessary for themselves and others, that they may not be unfruitful. We're supposed to do good. We're entering a season of year when you have lots of opportunities to do good. 
Operation Christmas Child gives you a great example of doing good. This year, maybe more than most, you need to carefully consider with holidays like Thanksgiving or Christmas how you can do good. And is there somebody that might feel left out because COVID has left them at home? They don't need to be out in the public, but how can you relate to them? How can you meet their needs? Can you even show up on their doorstep and greet them more than six feet away with your mask and have a conversation with them? If you're not, maybe even going to have them over for Thanksgiving. That might not be right. But there's all sorts of ways we need to ask, how can I do good, even in the craziness of 2020, to meet the needs of others? Which leads to our fourth question on your outline, who can I assist right now? Right now, who do you know in your life that you can do some good for? Like, you can do it right now on your phone or, uh, you know, I know some of you guys text during my sermons, okay? You can text somebody that you're like, hey, man, how are you? By the way, the pastor said I'm doing, you should do something good. I mean, you don't have to say that, right? But who can you assist right now, today, somebody whose life you can make a difference in because of a phone call, a video call, stopping by their house, giving them a gift, giving them some time? How can you assist someone right now? Not next week, today, now. Well, we're talking about living grace. The fifth way Paul instructs Titus and by extension us to live grace is to bless others. To bless others. Number five is bless others. He says, everyone with me sends greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. What he's doing is sharing a blessing. This is kind of an atypical blessing, an atypical close to a Pauline epistle. Uh, that means a letter written by Paul, you know. And so, but it's genuine. He says, we greet you. And it's not just a formality, but there's a, a depth of understanding of what that meant in their culture. And uh, greet them for us. And grace be with you all. Commentators actually make a big deal out of that last sentence, grace be with you all. Reminding guys like me that it's not just them saying, have a good day. Great to see you. Hope it all goes well. Look forward to seeing you again. It's, it's not trite. It's not flippant. That There was a, a depth of meaning there. That that's like a prayer in one sentence. Grace be with you all. And Paul in his mind is thinking about Titus. And he's thinking about all the other saints he might have known of on the island of Crete. And any that he didn't know. And he's praying for them. And he's saying grace be with them all. And think about the depth of God's grace. The breadth of God's grace. God's sovereignty and power and love all tied up in that grace. And so when you say grace be with you all, you're saying a lot, which leads to our fifth and final question. Well, it's not your final question, but your fifth one here, and that is, who can I encourage? Grace should encourage. Blessing others should encourage. Doing good, meeting needs should encourage. The way we live our lives should be one of encouragement. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1, verse 12, the New Living says it this way, and I, I like it in the New Living. It says, when we all get together, I want to encourage you in your faith, but I also want to be encouraged by yours. Isn't that part of the blessing of coming together on a Sunday morning to be able to sing? Even if you're watching at home, to be encouraged by the faith of others. To get together even on Zoom for Sunday school or a small group meeting. And to hear the insights, the thoughts of others. 
Isn't that wonderful with family and friends that are believers of Jesus that you can say, here's what's going on in my life, and they can pray for you right then and there. Or they write you a note or a text and say, hey, man, I'm still praying for you. How's it going? To be encouraged by one another. So that was Romans 1.12. Listen to what Paul says at the end of 2 Corinthians 13.11. He says, Dear brothers and sisters, I close my letter with these last words. Be joyful. Grow in maturity. Encourage each other. Live in harmony and peace. Then the God of love and peace will be with you. When we live this way, God's going to be with us. He's going to flow through us as we encourage one another. Which leads to your final application question. Who am I going to grace today? Who are you going to give grace to today, right now? You've heard five different ways we can do it. How are you going to do it? You should have somebody's name that you can write down there. Maybe you have more than one. Maybe you have a whole list. Maybe you're going to be busy this afternoon on the phone or making some home visits or doing something like that. That... Since we've been justified through faith and we have peace in Jesus, we've gained access by faith into the grace by which we now stand, that we seek to give grace to others. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we thank you so very much for your word. And though it was written going on 2,000 years ago, to Titus on the island of Crete, it still applies to us today of how we're supposed to live our lives. And so, Father, as we think about this sermon today about living grace and giving grace to others, may we be obedient. We've been so filled with joy and hope and peace because of what you've done through us, through Jesus that it's easy for us to imagine giving grace to others. And Father, for the person who may be burdened here today or in the sound of my voice, that's struggling with anxiety and the cares of the world or fears or worries of how you're going to pay your bills or their health or whatever else, may your spirit fill them to overflowing so that as they've received grace, they might give grace. Thank you, God, for your love for us. We celebrate that today. In the name of Jesus, everyone said, amen.